Chapter One of Miss Ingalls by Gertrude Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter One. He had called at her house before, one night of snow. The woman in black who came to the door, visibly not a servant, had told him Miss Ingalls was absent. She had made her way for him to enter, so that he might shut out the cold, and in the hallway had imparted the further knowledge that her sister was in the West Indies. She had gone the first of February, and was not expected home until the second week in March. A friend, passing through the city on her way down there, she said, picked up Grace at an hour's notice and took her along. He had not known he could feel so dejected by not getting a sight of her at the end of that first pilgrimage to her dwelling. Tightening his overcoat to breast the icy wind, he had laid balm to himself by picturing her amid sunshine and warmth, palm trees, pomegranates, hibiscus. He praised the friend who had had eyes to see that she was paler than she should be, thinner, too, though that aerial thinness was so charming, and had whisked her away for a holiday. She continued to haunt his thoughts, as she had done for some months. He entered what might be called the fourth period of his sentiment with regard to her. The first was curious to remember. He had wished to know who was guilty of certain remarkably poor specimens appearing on the screen at every contest of the composition class in company with his own strong sketches and many more giving evidence each in some degree of power and promise she had been pointed out to him and he had wondered what made her try to be an artist he had not thought her very interesting his interest had been awakened in time by a miserable little pastel that he found pinned near his own illustration of poverty amid thirty pictures setting forth every one of them the sordid horrors of poverty emaciated children ragged beggars want filth there had shone forth faintly just one of a different inspiration hers badly drawn as usual badly composed showing the pure and glorious bride of st francis something within him had bowed and done homage he had looked at her more attentively and entered the second period one can be an execrable painter yet an exquisite person she looked as if she might have passed through some great sorrow and were still sad though trying not to let it be seen she wore mourning for her father he believed her to be poor like himself that she was delicately bred was more than evident poverty was perhaps new to her and the pursuit of art her innocent conception of going to work she ceased coming to the art school soon after and he saw no more until one of the richer students held at her house a reunion of her fellow students to this she also came still in black but a black less funereal and he hardly left her side during the whole evening they talked of their favorite authors in answer to his prayer at parting for permission to call on her she told him where she lived there began the third period and now the middle of march had come 
when she must be home again, he could not disguise from himself a certain emotion as he set forth a second time for her house. His little mother asked him where he was going, and he satisfied her curiosity as kindly as he could without telling her anything, but he kissed her with real fondness. She had been so good to him, his debt was always present to his mind, to afford him the education that was to make possible his rise in the world she had taken lodgers for years while he mixed paints on a palette she cared for the rooms of untidy bachelors and exacting old maids he was determined to repay her that the pearl of girls stood on a spiritual eminence which enabled her to see poverty as sacred that she could never feel scorn for the poor little hard-worked widow his mother enhanced her preciousness her fitness in his dreams still misty though these were and so he came to her house a small house in an unfashionable neighborhood once in better social standing again the older sister opened the door a very much older sister he thought by the ring on her finger married he could not perceive that she possessed one grain of the younger sister's charm yes she is back he heard with relief won't you come into the parlor i will tell her mr andreas dane i remember perfectly she opened the door into an unlighted room while she felt for the matches and while he waited he became aware of an odor like that in a florist shop a commingling of roses and carnations the gas flame sprang into being the room into sight and his eyes fell upon what they should have been prepared for, a vase full of burning crimson roses and another vase full of white clove pinks. Being left alone, he looked around him like one accustomed to seeking among things for indications of character. Here were the furnishings, unmistakably, of people of refinement, but he noted it with a kind of comfort. The carpet was old, like the carpets he was used to. The upholstery needed renovating. A folding door permitted a partial view of the back room. By every sign, a study. He gave a moment's attention to the pictures on the wall, witnesses of a scholarly taste. But from each excursion, the odor of the roses called him back and became the cause of a curious uneasiness, an oppression, not often created by a fragrance so wholesome and so sweet. It troubled him, like a suspicion, a presentiment. He stood by the mantel, alert for her coming, and had time, while waiting, to feel awkward and overlarge, coarse of hand and foot, ugly. He half-turned for a glance at himself in the mirror. He was, in truth, rather ugly, but it was a nice ugliness, a cleanly, manly, endearing ugliness which he could not be expected to appreciate. He looked thoughtful, he looked modest, he looked kind, and if his face did not at once give the measure of his fine capacity, his talents would the more be a happy discovery to any person going deeper than the surface. Just now, however, he was humiliated by the sight of his reflection, and he was not given to caring about his looks. It was the fault of those too large, too redolent, too rich roses. 
Then he heard her footstep on the stair, and the mental image of her descending to him supplanted every other. He could see her in anticipation, with great clearness, her adorable slimness, like a flower stems, her little head with the careless coils and blowing wisps of young girls who frequent art schools, the dainty pallor of her face above the black dress, the languor of her smile, when she, to that extent, overcame her melancholy. She stood in the doorway, and all his other feelings were merged in surprise. She was not the same person. To begin with, she had shed the mourning to which he had grown accustomed. She was dressed in silks, softly gay, enriched by costly laces. Her hair had a look of pretty formality and fashion, and she had discarded sadness, even as she had mourning. She brought into the room an addition of perfume. On her breast lay violets in a thick knot, violets that made one jealous. He felt his courage forsaking him. But after a few minutes' talk, he regained something of her reality, and became a little reassured. Her smile had a feverish brightness, but her eyes were unchanged, brown eyes that had nothing about them of Spanish or Oriental, eyes with a characteristic look of spiritual curiosity, a deep-seated, half-troubled preoccupation with spiritual values. He felt at home with them, and presently began again to hope. She led the way into the neighboring room, which contained a literary workman's large writing desk. Only it was cold and orderly, as it could not have been for one moment during his life. She lighted the drop lamp, and, with her new animation, made her visitor admire the curiosities she had brought back from the islands. Baskets, pottery, corals, shells... It has been too, too wonderful, she said. I can hardly believe it yet. She pressed a hand to her forehead, as if to get a firmer hold on her thoughts, and make sure she was not taking dreams for waking. I came home from my work one afternoon. I must have told you that after giving up the art school, I was learning the kindergarten method, so as to be able to teach. I came home and found a friend I had not seen for several years, Mrs. Lamont, waiting for me here. She had married, and was taking her husband, he is a retired army officer, on a sea voyage to make him well of a cold that worried her. She is such a dear, Ida Lamont, she interpolated enthusiastically, except for liking each other so much. You might say our acquaintance was very slight, before this trip together. We had met at a hotel in the mountains, where we only spent two weeks, my father and I. But she had said that if ever she came to the city, she would look us up. And she did. As soon as she saw me, she decided I must go with them. And, mind you, it was almost a honeymoon she was going on. Yet she wanted to take me along. Don't you call it noble of her? I hadn't time for anything. She didn't give me time to think. We started that same evening for New York, and next day we sailed. In a blizzard. I shall never forget the mean ferocity of the weather that day. Then, gradually, gradually, it became quieter, milder, 
warmer, brighter. One after another we dropped our winter wraps, and then it was all blueness and wonder. We came in sight of land, and it was tropical. Banana trees and palms and sugarcane plantations with little gray cabins along the shore. I am glad for you to have escaped our disagreeable February, he said, with a dry throat. In a few days, spring will begin. It has been like a fairy story, a transformation scene, she continued. Almost before we were out of the harbor, Mrs. Lamont said she could not bear to see me in black, and made me give up mourning. She had her maid taken one of her own dresses to fit me. This that I have on is one of hers. Did you ever hear of such generosity? His breast was eased, as if a physical weight had been lifted from it. He found a ready tongue again. They talked for a while of travel and tropics. Then she wished to hear about his fortunes, and showed a kind of gladness at the news of posters and frontispieces he had been commissioned to supply. Isn't it singular, she said, how one can never tell what is round the corner? a reason why we ought never to despair. On Saturday, you may be trudging with half-frozen feet to work you hate, because it's so uncongenial, and Saturday of the week after may find you on an enchanted island where the maddest fairy stories and romances come to pass. He became uneasy again, because her glance, fixed actually on the worn carpet, rested with a brooding air, a happy wonder, on scenes that he could not guess at. While she was thus occupied with visions of Caribbean seas and skies, one of her hands played with a ring on the other hand, a ring sparkling with newness. Could Mrs. Lamont be the donor of that, too? It formed a rather startling ornament for the slender, brownish hand, whose mate, as he had had occasion to remark, handled the pencil so nervelessly. It shared some quality with the massed roses and acutely odorous pinks. It was composed of one great drop of ruby fire and a diamond imprisoning one great drop of quintessential light. The sight of it produced a return of his faint sickness of soul. And now, he forced himself to speak, do you think of going back to the work you left, the kindergarten? She smiled as she very softly shook her head in the negative. He was made to wait a moment before anything was added to that answer. No. She looked at him as if she thought he ought to be able to guess the reason, and, after a little pause that gave him time to do so, said that whichever, since his first sight of those insolent roses, he had been fearing to hear. I am going to be married. The words he uttered right after this were so mechanical that he did not know what they were. They drew forth, however, a little amplification on her part. It is a name you must often have heard, or, if not heard, seen. Overcome. Can you mean overcome brothers? The big men's clothing house? Yes, it is the youngest of the brothers, Clarence. He was a fellow passenger on board the Pretoria, an acquaintance of Mrs. Lamont's. 
She looked musingly at her ring and again smiled. Almost funny, isn't it? If, by any chance, before this I thought of the possibility of marrying, I supposed, of course, it would be somebody literary or artistic or a professor or at least a professional man. It's part of what makes it so like a fairy story. A fairy prince wouldn't have to be artistic or professional, would he? She asked with merry frankness. Andreas Drain did not shorten his call because he was in pain. He did not find everything changed by the fact that this young girl was promised to another. Something of her, he persisted in believing, belonged to him through the affinity he had been so sure of. Her brown eyes in no wise shut him out, though their new radiance was due to circumstances which, after this evening, would banish him. They were sincere and friendly. Were they also a little pitying? Since she was no longer a damsel in the position of being tried and, if found satisfactory, honored with the offer of one's name, but a poignantly lovely and desirable woman, forever out of reach, his heart jumped to a quick knowledge of itself, and he remained as late as possible to get what pleasure he could from being near her gentle beauty, and to carry away the more to remember. He had not come with a definite idea of looking for happiness, or with the certitude that it lay there. But he went out into the March night, and, as far as he knew, out of her life, with a gloomy distaste for existence of one who feels no doubt of having lost paradise. End of chapter 1